new barcode standards are coming, the latest on autonomous truck technologies, and a sluggish freight market continues. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Aptian is a global provider of mission-critical, industry-specific logistics and transportation management solutions. Aptian Proof of Delivery provides advanced transportation systems to world-leading brands, helping to transform final mile delivery, boost operational efficiencies, and drive business growth. Your delivery operation can be a powerful vehicle to deliver game-changing customer service. Visit aptian.com and discover what's next now. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, the world has long used barcodes for data tracking and transactions. We see them stamped on nearly every product we buy. However, new standards are being introduced to replace the humble barcode with more sophisticated codes that can contain more data. To find out more, here's Victoria with today's guest. Victoria? Thanks, Dave. Our guest today is Melanie Hilton, Senior Vice President, Innovation and Partnerships at GS1 US. She's here to talk with us about 2D barcodes and the coming transition from 1D barcodes across industries. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you, Victoria. Very happy to be here. Terrific. Um, so we spoke to your colleague, Carrie Wilkie, a while back about the anniversary of the barcode and the coming move to uh, two-dimensional or 2D barcodes. In a nutshell, uh, can you talk about what, to be, what are 2D barcodes and you know why the move toward replacing the more traditional barcode we're all used to? Yes, a 2D barcode, which many of us are now familiar with uh, thanks to the uh, ubiquity of mobile phone scanning, um, their little square, uh, you know, they look like little dots and, and spaces on product packaging. Sometimes when you walk into a restaurant, it might have replaced what used to be a paper menu. Um, so a 2D barcode is a data carrier that can hold um, a pretty rich set of data, but also one thing that's very interesting about 2D barcodes is they connect to the internet. So at, at its very base, a 2D barcode can have a URL so that when you scan it with your phone, it will take you to an internet experience. And the move to replacing the traditional barcode or what would then be referred to as 1D or a linear barcode is in fact the more information that can be uh, carried in it, that it can connect to the internet, and that you can communicate dynamically, leveraging that barcode internet connection on many different use cases. Um, so I think that uh, the move to replacing them is because the original barcode, the UPC for many of us in the United States, was designed to do one thing, go beep at checkout, and hopefully linked to an item file that tied to a price that was gonna actually result in a, an accurate receipt for the consumer. Um, so the 2D barcode is just leveling that up, um, but then I think also creating the ability to address a broader set of use cases, which I know we're gonna talk a little bit more about here today. Yes, great, well, thank you. So when you talk about um, you know, all of that, so what specifically, what kinds of data can be stored in these new barcodes and, and how do they actually work compared to what you know, the, the traditional ones we're talking about? The first thing is it could probably contain almost any kind of data, size limiting 
being one of the factors the, the more data you put in a barcode the bigger it becomes so obviously we, we don't want a barcode that's the size of a an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. However, um, the kinds of data that can be very valuable in a two-dimensional barcode. So I mentioned a URL in the last question. What's so amazing about that URL is that you can drive contextual experiences with a URL in a barcode and a, right, a UPC code doesn't even have the concept of being able to put letters in it like HTTPS or something. So I think first of all, that ability to put a URL in there, which then, gives you infinite possibilities in terms of how you connect either a consumer or someone in the supply chain or in a retail operation. Um, but the, the second thing is that if you don't want to have that internet experience, let's say you need to do very rapid types of inventory control operations in a store or in a warehouse. That two-dimensional barcode can also carry very critical information like a serial number, batch and lot information, which is right about product production, or even expiration date information, those types of information can be very helpful for inventory management functions, stock keeping, stock rotation, shelf rotation, and also for very important consumer facing things like product expiration and recall. Um, so the way they work is they're scanned like any other barcode and the software that sits in that scanner, whether it's your mobile phone, it's a, a, a a reader device in the hands of a, a retail associate or warehouse worker, um, the software then actually mediates that data in that barcode and provides whatever the next step should be um, based on the workflow that's been designed. Perfect, thank you. So you just mentioned a few of the things, um, you know, in warehouses and supply chains. I've read a little bit about how uh, the advantages that these bring to the consumer, you know, in terms of accessing more information. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the benefits to the broader supply chain. Yes, uh, I, the funny thing is, Victoria, this, I know I have to be careful because this could take all day. We could talk about so many <laughs> benefits. One thing I really appreciate about a two-dimensional barcode is this convergence of use cases. So if you think back to what I said about the current UPC barcode or 1D barcode today, right, does one thing, it has one function. It can maybe lightly do some other functions because a, a UPC, think of a nine ounce bag of potato chips. Every nine ounce bag of potato chips manufactured by brand X, regular flavor, carries the same UPC. But when you put a two-dimensional barcode on that, you can start to differentiate the data in that barcode. So for example, if your supply chain says you need to manage inventory first in, first out, the batch lot information embedded in that barcode could make stock rotation much simpler. Uh, one use case that I, all, I love to give is uh, I was in a store where I was looking at frozen pizzas and they were expired. And I thought, this is crazy that they have expired frozen pizza in this freezer case. And if you could put a 2D barcode with the expiration date kind of on the end of, you know, how pizzas are stacked in a freezer case, you could put that 2D barcode on the end of that and you could just take an associate. Many associates today have handheld devices that have their sort of daily dashboard of tasks and said, hey, you need to go check the freshness of the food in the freezer case. And they could go down the, just scan, scan, scan. A red light means pull it off the shelf. A green light means leave it on the shelf. This sort of, so I think of in terms of automation, um, labor productivity, knowing that we're in an environment where we're faced with turnover, you know, associate training challenges, but also just plain old efficiency. There are a lot of things that these 2D barcodes can unlock. I mean, that's at the store level. I think you could then kind of go upstream in your supply chain and do very similar things um, as you're moving inventory from different points um, in a supply chain from birth to the point of sale. 
That's a really great example. Thank you. Um, that really helps me picture it a little a little better. Um, how are these barcodes being used today, though? So where are we on the journey toward full Im implementation of this newer standard? Well, in at GS1US, we have a program called Sunrise 2027. So the hope is that by 2027, we can have the entire industry at least able to read a two-dimensional barcode. Now, that would be alongside of current barcode technology. So not instead of, I, I think the goal for any brand owner that that loves their real estate on their packaging, um, eventually they would just love to only have one barcode because right, nobody wants a package that's, um, we would often say that it's covered like a Christmas tree or a NASCAR with all kinds of barcodes. <laughs> um, but today where we're seeing them used is, uh, as you had mentioned in one, right, advantages to the consumer. So there's a lot around origin of materials, uh, feminine hygiene products, where was the cotton for this sourced? Um, there's an effort called Smart Label that's really about disclosure around ingredients and um, um, you know, health, health allergens, wellness, um, genetic modification, those types of digital disclosures around products. So you'll see on a lot of products that you know it'll, it's telling the consumer to scan here. Some interesting use cases we've also seen maybe not so much in, in the consumer packaged goods space, but in apparel, is around full serialization of these barcodes to drive circularity. So helping the consumer know what is the material composition of this product, maybe replacing the care label, replacing the, the um, fabric content label with a QR code as a way to um, drive recycling programs, sustainability programs, um, and then also I think general information for the consumer. So we're also actually, one last use case, seeing it used at point of sale. So in fact, there are uh, is a retailer, Puma, who has replaced their they're no longer at their flagship store in New York carrying one-dimensional barcodes on product. They've replaced them with a combination of QR codes and RFID to drive all of those use cases I was mentioning, um, but also to change up the point of sale function um, in the store. So you, you mentioned um, you know, multiple barcodes on, on things. How will 1D and 2D work together as this kind of transition happens? I mean, are there some instances where the old ones will just continue to be used? How does that work? Yes, this is the science part. Maybe if um, you know all of the creative things you can do with the 2D barcode become the art, this is the science. And there's a big effort underway. Um, certainly GS1US is working with a lot of the software and hardware providers in industry today across the myriad of the supply chain um, point of sale certainly being key because you never want to charge a customer twice for the product. And for a while, we believe this co-location of a 1D barcode and a, and a 2D barcode will, will exist because there will be very advanced retail environments where they will scan everything at 2D and there will still be mom and pop uh, convenience stores that you'll go on, you know, your summer road trip and you'll run across a company that uh, that's just doing things with a very small point of sale implementation that may continue to scan that traditional UPC or EAN. So the, the work that's happening now is really to engage that technology provider community to ensure that software um, puts in the right kinds of read priority, that, that it understands when it's run across the same product, maybe versus two different products that Right. Um, you, you certainly also don't want a product walking out of the store unpaid. Um, so these are not insignificant challenges, but there's been an effort underway. We really started this work back in 2018. And as you can imagine, to move an entire industry 
hence the Sunrise 2027 target um, is a lot of effort. But again, the goal is to accommodate wherever companies are at on their technological journey and ensure that coexistence will not create consumer friction um, or inventory inaccuracies for supply chains, but also that eventually you're creating this nice glide path one thing you've probably noticed in a lot of newer retail environments, if you've walked into new stores, most of those point of sale systems actually already recognize 2D barcodes. And so there's also maybe some leapfrog capability that new entrants to the market will have um, if they go straight to kind of best in class for their for their in-store and in-supply chain hardware and software. Um, but it is a journey and it always relies on, that's, that's really been the heart of GS1 US for the past uh, 50 years is, you know, helping people no matter where they're at or what their level of technical savvy might be. Is there anything else about the new standard you think is important to mention? Anything sort of logistics and supply chain, the community, um, largely should sort of pay attention to in the months ahead, other than what we've talked about here already. Given that I'm an innovation wonk, I, I guess I get to, I, this is my one little plug for thinking about what kind of role a two-dimensional barcode has in a world that's moving towards much more IoT and sensors. I mean, a 2D barcode is in fact a sensor. It's very unique, right? It, it requires engagement with an optical reader. So it's not like a um, something that might be gathering temperature or humidity data and right automatically throwing off those reads to a piece of infrastructure but when you think about a two-dimensional barcode you have to find the balance between what you're actually going to embed as data in the barcode and what you're going to connect the data you're going to connect that barcode to in the cloud and anytime you talk about cloud now you have to also in a supply chain environment talk about edge because so much of supply chain depends on high throughput accuracy and capacity and that means you know if you if you over overburden your barcode with too much data like i said the size would become unwieldy for one but two it will have a performance impact if you don't put enough data in the barcode and you're relying on you know pinging the internet for pieces of information and you have some sort of internet outage um, or loss of connectivity, you don't want to actually bring your supply chain to a halt. So um, this is the nuances that we're working through with industry. And you know, I, I, I just want to throw one quick use case out there that I saw. I had the opportunity to tour an online fulfillment center. So this is um, a product comes into the fulfillment center and it's then sorted for delivery to home. And the first thing that happens when the product comes in is that a person who puts the product in a tote that goes into a robotic um, system that you know has all the all the totes and will bring them out automatically for the orders is they manually key in the batch lot information and the expiration date. And that is just so fraught with being error prone, like the challenges we have with saying, we're starting off our process of bringing product into the distribution center with something manual that we might make a mistake. And that mistake has repercussions downstream, right, to productivity, to profitability, to efficiency. And so I think um, some, some of those simple wins where we could just say, wow, by doing one slightly different thing, moving to this 2D technology, embedding one critical piece of data in that barcode would automate that decant process in a fulfillment center that actually is going to ensure a much greater degree of accuracy on picking and packing, especially when you're looking at a world full of consumers who say, I want it in the same day, I want it in four hours, I want it in two hours, right? We, we've created this instant gratification society for our 
ourselves. And I think for retailers and brands, how we fulfill that demand is um, is going to continue to challenge us. But so that's maybe just the, for, in my opinion, kind of some low hanging fruit we should look to achieve for up uh, for the supply chain. Well, thank you. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of benefits to be gained. So we appreciate you uh, being with us uh, today to talk about all this, Melanie. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. We have been talking with Melanie Hilton of GS1 US. Back to you, Dave. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Ben, we've been hearing about the potential for autonomous self-driving trucks for a few years now. And we hear that the technology can be applied in a number of different ways and instances, but there also seems to be a lot of opposition to their adoption. Can you share some of the latest of what's going on with these technologies? Yeah, I'd be glad to, Dave. Uh, as you mentioned, the technology seems to be coming along apace, uh, but in a sense, now we're on to the truly difficult part, which is finding the right home for it in, in the same world that we all live in here. Uh, we've seen an increasing number of stories about the rise of autonomous trucks on the open roads. So far, this is mainly, uh, we've seen large companies running pilot projects along sort of the wide open roads and the perfect weather in the U.S. Southwest. Some recent examples uh, come to mind in Arkansas. There was a trial run by Tyson Foods and Gatic. Uh, Knight Swift, the big trucking fleet, is using Embark trucks in California and Arizona. And we've seen Uber Freight running Aurora Innovation trucks in Texas. And this week we saw another kind of a similar deal where Ryder, the uh, transportation and, and fleet provider, announced they're working with Kodiak Robotics to build what they call the truck port in Texas. This will be at an existing Ryder fleet maintenance facility in Houston, and it will allow Kodiak to launch and land, in their words, autonomous trucks, as well as transfer freight so they can serve routes between Houston, Dallas, and Oklahoma City. Well, Ben, it sounds like this technology is obviously getting more reliable. And is this something that could help with the ongoing driver shortages we're facing? Uh, that That is a talking point for sure, but not everyone sees it that way. Uh, there was also news this same week, actually, about self-driving vehicles, uh, this time concerning the state of South Dakota, where the bill is making its way through the state house that would allow autonomous vehicles to operate on South Dakota roads without a human operator behind the wheel. And almost immediately, we saw real opposition to that bill from the Teamsters Union and from a, a group of South Dakota law enforcement officers. Now, the Teamsters certainly don't want robotic trucks taking jobs away from their drivers. But in this debate, they're saying that, uh, quote, driverless technology is not ready for prime time. Um, and, and they also took uh, sort of the political tack of saying that the bill was written by California tech companies that want to use South Dakota's public roads uh, and, and population as lab rats. So that, that's, that's sort of the political argument against it. Uh, however, also the police officers, uh, they were worried as well about the safety risks. And they pointed to some recent results that we've seen of robo taxis, those driverless cabs. Uh, they had been operating in San Francisco for example, in uh, recent months, but they were in the last couple of weeks uh, largely banned from those roads. They had a series of accidents out there where some AVs, the robo taxis, got confused basically because uh, the local roads are, are can be very hectic. Um, and so when they get confused, they kind of automatically stop or pull over and that can be in the wrong place. So sometimes they blocked police from responding. They, um, they had an accident with a fire truck. 
they obstructed ambulances, so there are traffic jams, and there have even been a few pedestrian crashes. Now, of course, we should note that human drivers have surely done all those things too, so the tech firms would say that their autonomous versions are actually safer, but that debate will have to continue to play out. Right, and I think we'll eventually see some widespread use of autonomous vehicles, but there are a lot of small steps before that will happen. Exactly, we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks, Ben. Glad to. And Victoria, you were at the SMC3 conference in Atlanta this week, where you heard from some freight executives that the outlook for the freight market still looks rather sluggish. Can you share some details? Absolutely. Yes. Happy to. So that's right. I was in Atlanta for SMC3 Jumpstart. Uh, just a little background. That's a three-day less than truckload or LTL focused event that's held each January. And it brings together carriers, logistics services providers, shippers, and, te and technology companies really to get a pulse on trucking and transportation markets, but also to discuss the latest trends, issues, and challenges facing logistics and the broader supply chain. More than 600 people turned out this year. Um, the top issues were the economy and the outlook for trucking and transportation in 2024. AI, you know, they talked about what it is, what it isn't, and how logistics companies can get best apply it in their organization. Sustainability was a top issue, as were government re regulations, which, it, which is a key issue in trucking, of course, as Ben just alluded to in his uh, report on autonomous trucking. Um, all that said, the economy and market conditions really took center stage as you uh, set the stage here. So uh, uh, that's really what was discussed. So what are they saying? What's the outlook? Are leaders in trucking and transportation saying that we should expect different things in the months ahead? Well, the uh, consensus is that the challenging, con challenging conditions that have plagued freight markets for the past couple of years will continue uh, in 2024, but that the volatility will diminish as the year progresses. 2023 was characterized by a freight recession, as we know, so any improvements are really welcome uh, at this point. To put it in perspective, um, Dave Bozeman, who is president of CH Robinson, the global logistics services provider, told attendees on the first day of the event, and I'm quoting, good riddance to 2023. Bozeman was a featured speaker, and I also had the chance to talk with him separately, and uh, he reiterated that comment during our conversation. And he added that he expects to see some carryover of last year's trends as the year unfolds, and that he doesn't expect to see a meaningful uptick in business conditions across the industry really before for the second half of the year. And those comments were in line with many others. Uh, economists who spoke during the conference said we should ex expect a return to pre-pandemic growth levels and market conditions over the next few years, which will help. Um, and they also pointed to easing inflation and the destocking that has occurred across the industry in the past year or so as uh, good signs. The consumer economy, as we know, has been pretty resilient, but spending has been on services, not goods, which isn't good for freight markets. But as I said, the hope is that inventory levels, as they come down and conditions get back to normal, and I'm using air quotes there, um, that freight volumes will improve later this year and into 2025. Cost is also an issue, though, and many commented that although inflation is easing, prices are still very high, as are interest rates, so it's really costly to run a business today, especially a trucking business. Rob Estes of the freight carrier Estes Express Lines made that point really clear in one of the presentations. 
So the main theme is really just to expect more of the same for at least the per first part of this year, with some improvement, hopefully, down the road. We'll see. We did get some good news out of uh, Washington this week about the economy. The um, fourth quarter GDP last year was much better than expected. So maybe that's a sign of better times to come. Yeah, let's hope. I know that we are still seeing freight markets lagging behind. And they traditionally always have kind of lagged behind the U.S. economy a bit. So we hope that eventually they'll catch up to the rest of the economy. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. Also, check out the podcast notes section for some direct links to read more about the topics we discussed today. And we'd like to thank Melanie Noose Hilton of GS1 US for being our guest. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at agilebme.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded on Fridays. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Forged from decades of industry experience, Aptian Proof of Delivery supports global delivery fulfillment operations with the tools they need to increase efficiencies, gain real-time visibility, automate communications, and enhance the delivery experience for customers. Your delivery operation can be a powerful vehicle to deliver game-changing customer service, reduce costs, and drive growth. Aptian Proof of Delivery can help. Visit aptian.com and discover how now. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters. Be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.